Um, oh, uh, you're breaking up a little bit. Let's uh, check, 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 checkity yeah. check. Can you hear me? Okay. Can you hear me? Are we good? Are we reconnecting? Reconnect. All right, here we go. This is this. Is, there we go. Okay. Hopefully, this only takes like five minutes, and we don't have to deal with that again. <laughs> Welcome to episode 356 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got another interview today. This is like the third in yes. five weeks or something. Let's keep going. These are fun. Yeah. Uh, we had a really fun time today. We caught up with Jemray Gungor, who is a product manager uh, on Instagram, working on the camera and AR filters. So we got a great interview. It's actually kind of like a part two to last week's episode. Mm-hmm, last week, mm-hmm. uh, we had a listener question asking, you know, should I be a product manager? Well, Jem Ray has gone through that transition and is here to tell you what's up. Jem Ray was a product designer on Facebook before transitioning into product management. Uh, so we got a good interview coming up. Before we get into it, a huge shout out to Float, our golden ratio supporter for this episode. Float is the most accurate tool for planning your project resources and scheduling your team's time. More than 3,000 of the world's top design teams, including BuzzFeed, MetaLab, and Hulu, use Float to plan their projects and schedule their team's time. You can learn more at float.com slash design details. Thank you, Float. Thanks, Float. We also have some new very important pixels this week. All Stacked right. list this week, actually, yeah. Marshall. Wow. Uh, huge shout out to Zach Aronson, Ezra Everhart. Which, Ooh, by the way, that's a good one. That's a Game of Thrones like World of Warcraft kind of. Yeah, thing. that's a that's a cool. That's yeah. It's got the, the comic book alliteration thing. Like Ezra, like, I'm gonna steal that shit. I'm gonna like put that in my back pocket for when I write my movie. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's like a character select screen for like a, a mythical sort of MMORPG, yeah, and dude. it just like pre-populate like Ezra Everhart. Yeah, yeah. It's like, got a Z in the first name and then Everhart. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. It's perfect. Cool name. Let's keep uh, going. <laughs> uh, thank you to. Bob Wasserman, Ruben Alexander Dryman, Harley Thomas, Sebastian Winther, Jan Holland. Uh, Jan, by the way, is the person uh, running that Kickstarter for that stencil that I oh. talked about. It was my yeah, cool yeah. thing a couple weeks ago. Nice, nice. He he heard and and supports the show, so thank you. Thank you. Chin uh, Bian, Tsui Yujing, Nicholas Daocho, and last but not least. Emily. Emily. <laughs> What's up, Emily? Thank you, everyone. That's a good, that's a hefty list, Brian. Normally, it's we had like, yeah. a hefty list, good names. Uh, yeah. Lots of good stuff in here. Thank you, everybody. If you didn't know, we're a listener supported podcast. We have a Patreon for just a buck a month. You get access to a special listener only segment in the show. And since today is an interview, uh, that segment is bonus questions. We call this the sidebar. Normally on a normal episode, uh, I'd be like a cool things, but super design specific. Mm-hmm. But today you're going to get some bonus questions from Gem Ray. So if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash design details. It starts at just a dollar a month and that money helps us literally make the show possible. So thank you to everyone who's supported this week and everyone who's already been supporting us. Uh, it means a lot. And yeah, if you want to, catch the bonus episodes today and from all past sidebars go to patreon.com slash design details thanks everyone and with that marshall let's get into our interview with jemray gungor jemray welcome to design details yeah welcome 
Thank you. Five years in the making. It's about damn time. It's good to have you here. For people who who don't know, can you just introduce yourself? Like, tell us what you're working on right now. Yeah, uh, my name is Jem Ray. I started my career as a product designer, uh, but then switched to product management uh, about five years ago. Currently, I'm at Instagram. I work on camera. What does that mean? Oh, well, you know, when you swipe right, when you open the app, basically all of that is is my team. And uh-huh. the primary focus we've had in the past year is uh, the AR effects on the platform. So, you know, all these like crazy effects and quizzes and whatever that didn't exist that exists now, that's basically our fault. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely. Impact. Um, well, as much fun as it would be to talk about Instagram, I think there's probably some interesting topics there. Uh, we wanted to talk about transitioning into product management because you're you're no longer a product designer you used to be correct and uh yeah we had a listener question last week on last week's episode about from a designer kind of asking like should i go in this direction should i really be a product designer should i try and transition and you came immediately to mind like marshall (laughs) and i did our best to answer but i was like all right we got to get an expert on here so let's just talk about like what you did, how all this happened. Yeah. So maybe like take us back a few years or like maybe the year leading up to, to becoming a PM, like Mm. what was going on? Why did you want to switch? What was happening in your world that made you want to get out of product design? Yeah. Good question. So this all happened after I started at Facebook, Uh, a little backstory there prior to Facebook, I was a design co-founder of a startup called branch. We were trying to fix public online conversations. We did that for about two years. You know, finding product market fit and consumer social is really, really hard, which is what we learned. And we were super lucky that Facebook was interested in kind of like echo hiring us, bringing us along. But up until that time, I had never really worked in a large company as a designer. It was just in our startup. And I came to Facebook and I got slotted in as a product designer. And that year was a very, very illuminating year for me. Because, you know, as I said, I didn't have a formal design education. I hadn't worked as a designer before. And basically every gap I have in my skill set became very painfully clear. And the other thing to consider is at the time, there were very few designers at Facebook. All of us fit in a room every Monday morning. And I was on the same floor as like these legendary people like Mike Mattis, Joey Flynn, Brandon Walken, Mac Tyler. And then here I am, like, I don't even know how like, I, I could have you know possibly gotten hired as a designer at Facebook. But yeah, let, let me tell you. So two things led to me switching roles over time. One is, as I mentioned, there was like a pretty clear skill gap, particularly on visual design. Uh, and at Branch, because it was my product, I could like work around it. It wasn't very obvious to people using the product. But at Facebook, I no longer make the constraints. I have to you know, work with a group of other designers. I'm getting a lot of critique about my work. Um, and, you know, after a good like six, nine months, I was of this opinion and my manager as well. They're like, well, either you have to invest a lot to close the gap here, or you have to find a way um, to reformulate your work uh, in, in a way that this isn't like a constraint for you anymore. So that on the skill side. And then on the other end, um, again, at the startup, we didn't really have very defined roles. So everyone was doing a bit of everything. Coming to Facebook, the boundaries of product design became a lot more clear to me, where, you know, the main responsibility and the deliverable were the designs. And, you know, I was still participating in things like product definition and strategy, but they were no longer part of my responsibility. And then there was someone else for whom it was their like main gig. And over time, I found myself 
not only wanting to do those things that are in an intersection of design and PM, but I was also doing things that were like really not in the you know realm of design. I was super fascinated with data. I learned how to write queries and like just look up the way people were using the site. That was super fascinating. Um, I wanted to work with engineers on sprint planning and trying to figure out like what is the most efficient way we can get this out. You know, trying to recruit people to my team. So. I, I think I found that the things I was gravitating towards were really like more aligning with the PM role than the design role. I found, and we talked about this a little last week, like there is sometimes a tension between, at least in my experience, a tension between the role of a product designer and a PM. Like there's, they're overlapping circles in the Venn diagram. Did you ever consider trying to lean into all these things you were doing, but remaining a designer? Like, okay, I, I like doing the data and the querying and the product development. I can just go invest in some visual skills and like ramp up and keep my role. Was that, how, how seriously did you consider that? Not really, honestly, because it was, it was clear to me that uh, one, one thing that I appreciate at, at Facebook is there's this HR point of view, which is like lean on your strengths. So you know, if you're strong at something, if you're interested in something, just like go double down on it. Don't try to close the gaps. That's the kind of advice I got, which is like, hey, you know, no designers. Like there, there's, there's a lot of people that have, you know, decent visual design and decent this and that. But then you have these things that could be superpowers for you. Like, why don't you go lean into those? That was one. Uh, the other one is I think there is a, this is one of the questions I think that came up last week you know, being a designer that does PME things. For me, the big difference there is, do you want to be accountable for it? Like everyone on the team can do PME stuff. You know, it's not like no one's, no one but PM contributes to strategy. No one but PM makes decks or like whatever. You can definitely contribute to those things. But at the end of the day, like when you're a PM, you're the one person accountable for all of this stuff. And I, I think that's that's where the difference is. Like, do you want to just do it or do you want this to be your job and the main way your performance and output is evaluated? Got it. That makes sense. Um, I still find that like accountability part to be a little bit of a blurry line for me. Like, I guess during performance review and stuff like that, but even as a product designer, you would hope that you're being accountable for the success of the product and like oh, product metrics and for all. For sure. Right? Like, well, okay. he, he, here's the way I think about it. Basically, for every other role, yes, everyone is responsible for the product being successful. But for everyone other than PM, you have another deliverable that is in line with your discipline. When you're a designer, we can look at you know your designs and whether they were like well crafted. If you're an engineer, we can look at the quality of your work. If you're an analyst, like everyone has this deliverable. But for PM, there's basically nothing other than whether the product worked or not. So for all these other roles, it's kind of a balance of like the success of the product, but also what you did. But then for PM, basically you don't really get A for effort. So if, if it doesn't like, it's not like, oh, you're, you know, this product yeah. doesn't work, but your slide deck was amazing. So, you know, you get a good, you tried there. really hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's a helpful way to frame it. Okay. So you, you basically had made up in your mind that you wanted to switch. I want to talk a little more about that actually, yeah, yeah. because I had not made up in my mind that I want to switch. Oh, sorry. Yeah, keep going. Oh, yeah. So this was very interesting. So all of these things are happening. Um, I get my per first performance review back. My PM is like, maybe Jeremy should be a PM. He's not a very good visual designer. I mean, he said more nicely, but then my manager was like, maybe Jeremy should be a PM. And I'm like, 
really, because up until that time, I had this very specific, you know, opinion about who PMs are and like what they do. Like, I'm like, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I wasn't in debate club. Like, I'm not super charismatic. I'm not a Steve Jobs. I can't go fundraise. Like, my only picture of a PM up until that time was our CEO. And Josh is like this very insightful guy, very charismatic, pretty good writer, very, you know, over-indexing on certain aspects of the job and not other aspects. And just looking at him, I'm like, well, I'm not Josh. I can't do this. But then I realized coming to Facebook that, you know, PMs come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I found more people that I could um, identify myself with. But definitely there was... I heard this um, from my PM and manager, say, in the summer of 2014, and it took me until the winter of 2015. It took me like nine months to actually like digest then and be like, yeah, maybe I should like really do this. Well, I was very conflicted. It was definitely a scary, scary choice. Was it only visual design or were there other parts of your design role that you felt like you were missing? Because honestly, like this, this comes up all the time, right? Is like, designers feeling like oh it's okay. I, I'm, I'm missing the visual skill but I'm still a UX designer or right like visuals sometimes feels like this optional thing so it's surprising that this was the one thing that that really like put the pressure on I can tell you a little more about it but I think there's also some emotional aspects that went into this that I haven't really publicly taught you like if I want to be completely honest and vulnerable I can tell you a little bit about those as well but uh, that's I up t- to you if you want <laughs> to. Yeah. I mean, why not? Um, so with the with the visual stuff, it is the visuals. It's also the interaction. Like back then, prototyping was like newly becoming uh, like an important aspect of the job. So, like, how springy is your animation, and like, is it the right amount of milliseconds? This was maybe on the cusp of skeuomorphism, like fading out. And when you're not a good visual designer, like good luck with skeuomorphic interfaces. Uh, like, yeah, uh, interesting, <laughs> yeah. interesting, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'll say this again. This is just my personal opinion. I, I think visual design is one of the core aspects of the job. So while you could definitely get by without it, you're not going to be one of the best people in your discipline uh, with that as a weakness. And that kind of started weighing on me. I'm like, yeah, I could go far, but how much further can I go? And, you know, there's probably no way I would have had this career trajectory in design that I've had on PM. Like the, the, the gap in visual design would definitely have created like a ceiling to my growth. That makes sense. I, and I agree. Marshall and I, we've talked about like the importance of visual design on here a lot. I think it's so interesting that this happened to you like, what, 2014? That was around iOS 7. Yeah. And <laughs> everything went flat and visual skills it's not that they went away. It just became focused in a different way. It became like more about the use of white space and type hierarchy. And that it's kind of still thing. hard. Like it's still when, hard. Yeah. When iOS 7 came, I was like, Oh, awesome. Like finally, maybe I can make stuff too. Like I, I thought that was my like one shot at being relevant or like my visual design skills not mattering as much, but I, <laughs> I, I realized I actually made it even harder in certain aspects. There's nothing to hide behind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like the placement of everything matters. The white space matters. The grid matters. Like mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, you can't can't you hide. lose the ability to say, "Oh, look, look how like nice this bezel on the button is to kind of distract you a little bit." Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I also want to say this other thing, Brian, uh, and this might be relevant to folks listening to the podcast that are maybe contemplating a similar switch. Joining Facebook as a designer, I also really felt the presence of like not fitting in. Not from a skill perspective, but also culturally, because I'll, I'll, you know, I'll I'll just tell you how it felt walking into the door. Everyone's wearing all black. 
and was playing kendama <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, people are very knowledgeable about like you know furniture trends from the 50s um uh-huh. ev- everyone is a photographer everyone has a fancy camera everyone's instagrams uh-huh. like perfectly framed perfectly color balanced pictures and i'm like ah this is not me i don't know if i'm gonna fit in here mm-hmm. uh, it, it was a little cliquey um and it, this is not to say you know i got a certain treatment from people or i got excluded it's just like all my insecurity is coming to the surface but you know on top of the more uh i'd say concrete aspects this also started weighing on me which is like i i don't see myself you know being one of these guys <laughs> that's really interesting i mean there's certainly stereotypes of designers but i think if that stereotype is uh a reason to feel excluded then that's a really bad part did, did that come up at all like were you able to talk with other designers about it or, or find other designers that maybe weren't necessarily in that Silicon Valley mold? Over time, I did. But I honestly, that kind of overlapped with me having decided to leave design already. So I think I wasn't feeling as invested in my like lack of fitting in anymore. So I, it was easier for me to talk about. But the, the first year, honestly, this was all very like embarrassing and insecurity inducing for me. So it wasn't something that I felt comfortable like going around talking about. I see. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, okay. So you said it was like a nine-month period to sort of like, yeah, from when you got the idea from maybe your manager and your PM to actually making the decision, was there like a tipping point or, or something that really clarified that decision for you? There actually was. And this is like completely random and you probably should edit this out. But uh, I went to New Zealand for the Webstock conference. Okay. And afterwards I had some free time. So I went to uh, this place called Queenstown in South New Zealand. It's kind of like a skiing resort town. In the summer they have like things like bungee jump, jumping and whatever, you know, that, that was like one of the things to do there. And then I bungee jumped. I'm like, if I can do this, I can do the PM thing. So just like bring it on. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cool. Okay. So yeah. uh, anyone else on the fence should consider uh, jumping off. <laughs> Put your life at risk. Atta- and safely then attached. comes into perspective, you know? <laughs> well, here's the thing though. I, I, I can definitely see why this is a scarier transition for a lot of people than most, because there's a lot of aspects about being a PM that I really love, but then you also can't deny the shitty aspects of being a PM, which is one, you're accountable for everything. When you're, I mean, again, as I said, like everyone on the product team is accountable for the success of the product, but they have other outputs that they, they can lean on for judgment of like their performance. But when you're a PM, you're literally accountable for everything. Uh, you have no excuses, especially at Facebook. Like, you know, you just don't get an excuse and say, oh, I didn't have a designer, so that's why X. Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, you, you, you need to get it done one way or the other. And even though you're accountable for everything, you don't have any direct levers really to influence the outcome. You don't select who you're going to work with, with XFN. You can't tell them what to do. There's all these different factors where like it's it's from an emotional perspective or mental toughness perspective. It's definitely like a really, really tricky job. So even though I'm like, I thought, oh, it could be really fun to be a PM when I actually thought about what it would entail. I'm like, uh, scary. I mean, I, I think any job transition is terrifying. Like I, can't imagine going through that but if i had to i guess i would hope that i would be perhaps systematic about it like did you talk to people did you dig in is there pm twitter did you read books like how do you sort of <laughs> oh, mentally yeah. prepare for this yep so uh actually the process of preparing was very very clarifying the process of preparing for the interview specifically was more clarifying than 
any of the conversations I had or any of the thinking I did. Uh, because, you know, the, the PM interview in most companies has three components. There's product design, there's analytical problem solving, and there's the, you know, leadership people skills part. And as you practice for the interview, you kind of get a sense of what you're expected to do day in and day out. And, and this is the other difference between like doing PME things in a team and actually being a PM. There's just like, you know, you could do PME things as a designer, but it's just so much more that you're going to have to do as a PM. The only way to really get a sense for that is either asking for end-to-end ownership of a certain part of the product, and I think that's helpful, but also really interview prepping. So how did you do interview prepping? Are, are there books out there, yep. or like mock interviews you did? Oh, I have so many feelings about this. So there is a book, uh, Cracking the PM Interview, yeah. which is kind of like the gold standard. I really recommend it. And since I've actually made the switch, this cottage industry of PM interview prep has like appeared. And if folks who are listening, I'd encourage you to be like very, very careful about it because like most things on the internet, there is, you know, no way to know whether the person giving you advice is in any way competent. <laughs> uh, so it's funny because there's a lot of PM interview prep sites where they literally have wrong answers to questions. Like as the uh, example, uh, I, I was laughing at it because I'm friends with the PM that drove Facebook stories and she found someone else found this example case study of like, how would you set a goal for Facebook stories? And the answer was literally wrong. And we were just like looking at it and laughing. But this is not funny to someone that used that website to prepare for the interview. Even worse for the person that gave, you know, $500 or whatever for like one-on-one tutoring. So just like, be very careful. Just because someone had a job at Facebook or Google doesn't mean they're a good PM. There's like a lot of duds. So uh, the book is very good. Um, if you have PMs you directly work with, they can definitely help you practice for the interview. Those are uh, some good ways to go about it. We'll have a link to that book in the show notes, talking to people. What are the logistics of switching? You said you had to like re-go through an interview. You're going to get a new job title. Do you get re-leveled? Do you get recomps? Like, How did that factor into your decision? Yeah, I can't tell you how this happens at Facebook, but that's probably very Facebook specific. So, um, you know, uh, so step one at Facebook is actually you have to find a VP that will sponsor you. I don't think this requirement exists for any other transition. But as far as I heard, there was a time where like a bunch of people switched to PM and they couldn't find teams and it was kind of weird. So basically you have to find a VP of PM that basically is going to say, hey, if this person can't find a team, I will take them to my team. And at the time, this was a director requirement. Now it's a VP. But at the time, I, I was on the newsfeed team. So I went to the director of product of feed, who happens to be Adam Mosseri, now uh, head of Instagram, still working for him. So I was like, hey, I'm interested in making the switch. He was just really, really chill about it and like didn't even grill me or ask me. And I, I think at the time, I had done some PME stuff as a designer. So um, there was some signal about it. But yeah, he was basically like, cool, I'll sponsor you. Um, so that was step one. Then I talked to HR. Uh, at Facebook, if you go from certain roles that we define as tech roles into PM, you, your level doesn't change. So if you go from engineering, design, data science, and some some other roles into PM, you stay at the same level, you stay at the same comp, I think, at least you know for the time being. Uh, but then... There's other roles that are outside of it, such as like if you go from marketing to PM or you know operations to PM, then you go down one level. So that's kind of the logistics of it. Um, you go through the interview. This might have changed, but at the time you went through the interview and then you became what we call a generalist PM, which is a person that has a job at Facebook but doesn't yet have a team. 
So you go through the process of, you know, finding a team. So um, I interviewed, uh, there was some time between my interview, you know, being successful and getting the offer to actually switching. But when I switched teams, then I spent the next, I think, two or three weeks basically talking to a bunch of different teams, getting a sense of what they're working on, getting a sense of personalities to pick like what team I should work on. Got it. Okay. So having the sponsor with Adam sounds like it was super helpful and you made the switch. What was it like in the first, let's say we could probably break it down by like what week, month, year? Like, mm-hmm. was it everything you'd hoped for? What sucked about <laughs> oh, the transition? Yeah. Uh, do you have any regrets? Like, what would you, what do you wish you'd done differently in that first period of time? Honestly, my only, w- I wish I had done this sooner. Mm. I wish I had gone into Facebook as a PM, you know, instead of like losing a year and a half. But, you know, uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Like, I didn't have all of these insights I have now. Yeah. But, the advice I would give about this is like, if you have this inkling, definitely pursue it because, you know, the worst case, it doesn't work out. You can go back. Uh, but I'd say I switched. Um, I had to find a team. Uh, I decided on a team. This is also a little peculiar. I think I did a bad job. I mean, ultimately, I did a, I think I did a good job picking a team. But now looking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Because the team I picked, the mandate wasn't very clear. There was no one on the team. Like the pitch basically was like, hey, we have this rough idea. There might be some something here. So do you want to come tease it out? And then we can help you build a team, which is like one of the worst deals you can get with a PM because you're accountable <laughs> for an outcome, but then you don't even have like anyone on your team to help execute on it. So uh, luckily expectations from me for that initial, you know, half were not very high, but I came in for the next like month. I was basically a data scientist because I was trying to look at data and figure out like, they gave me kind of a nebulous opportunity area and I had to kind of break it down into something more specific for us to go tackle. I didn't have a data scientist. So my first like number of weeks were just querying Excel, slicing, dicing, dicing, trying to figure out like what's there. Then I found something, I proposed it that got greenlit. And then my next job was cool. Now build a team. And again, this is like a horribly difficult, challenging thing for a person that's like new in a role, doesn't have any track record to speak of is to, to build a team. So then for the next month, my job was basically learning how to pitch and how to sell people, which is something I also was not very good at when I was a designer. You kind of have to, you know, learn as a, as a PM. So I was talking to analysts, engineers, researchers, just basically like trying to convince people to join my team. There were also many roles where uh, my team didn't have headcount for an individual contributor in that area. So I was also trying to build relationships with, you know, designers, uh, analysts, researchers from other adjacent teams for them to come work for me. These were all actually very awkward looking back. Like it's a much easier situation where you join a team and you have a full team and you like get going right away. Right, right, yeah. Okay, and so you built your team. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's talk about the the first, I, I suppose, the first review cycle. Like, how did you get feedback about how you were doing? What did you What did you learn about what you needed to be doing differently or better? Uh, did you find out that you were doing things really well that you, you maybe didn't realize you were actually strong at? Good question. It's very interesting because I think the first review I got revealed to me that this indeed was a very good fit for me in terms of career because a lot That's of things great, that came yeah. and because i mean i didn't really have to think about like how should i build a team and how do i empower people i was just doing what came to me naturally 
in that role. And a lot of them turned out to be things that made me very strong as a PM. So, you know, finding opportunity areas, activating and exciting people, being scrappy, like being able to find impact. Like, you know, I joined in September 2015. And then in, in those three months, I was able to build a team. And then, you know, it was very, you know, it wasn't a ton of impact, but it was not nothing. So in, in that time, I was already able to make some impact. Well, one of the things that we talked about last week that I'm, I guess I don't know if it's bullshit or not, but like we talked about this idea that if you were to transition, you could be a quote unquote designery PM. And in the same way, like an engineer that transitions to PM could be like a technical PM. Is that a myth? Like what, what did your background in design add to your experience now that you were technically a PM and like what have you noticed about those overlapping skill sets and maybe specializing as like a designery PM or engineering minded PM yeah so interestingly enough I became a PM and I picked an area that's like furthest away from design I I became a growth PM okay so I I could even say for the first three years I didn't really have a solid like solid design partner because like the organization didn't feel like I really like my area really needed that much design support because we weren't doing anything that like designy. So I definitely didn't lean into my strengths there. But I'll also say this: I wasn't, I didn't see myself as this amazing, excellent designer prior prior to switching to PM. Um, I was seeing myself as someone that kind of sort of got design but had other interests. So yeah, I, that's why I wouldn't say I'm a very like designy PM. When we say designy PM, I think about people like. Maybe you guys have interviewed him, maybe not. But Henry Liriani was a design manager at Messenger. He became a PM. Now he is the PM of like the interfaces design systems team at Messenger. And that's a very designy PM role because the output is really, is everything cohesive? Is everything interfaces, making sense? Yeah. Is interfaces, yeah. yeah. So I think you could make that kind of a switch that would let you like directly apply your skills. I see, okay. Uh, outside of that though, I'd say where being a designer comes in very handy is just thinking about all of your output in terms of products that have a purpose and an audience in mind. So when I write an email to, I don't know, like Adam Mosseri, that's that's basically like, I need to think about, all right, what do I need to achieve with this? You know, what is he going to think about? And how should I craft this such that it's going to have the intended result. And I think the thought process is not that different than, you know, putting a product out there. Yeah, I like that framing. That's a good way to put it. Then you can get to, you, you get to design a lot of slide decks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. How, <laughs> is that fun for you? How, where, what's it, what's the temperature on deck design? How does that make you feel? Uh, <laughs> honestly, at this point, that's the only part of my job that is really designy. So that's something I don't dislike. That's fun. Yeah. yeah. Click on that magic move and just let Apple tell you how to oh, do it. Oh, well, I mean, it's actually less that. It's more communication, you know, information <laughs> yeah, architecture, yeah. stuff like that. It's just like, how do I cut the most words out of this and stuff like that? Totally. All right. Well, uh, last bits of advice for any designer who might be on the fence about this or, yes. or hesitating a little. Yep. So because not a lot of people make the switch, Every time there's a designer at Facebook that's interested in PM, they come to me. So over the years, I've gotten to talk to many, many, many people. And you should write a book. This is a sign. Yeah, I know. Uh, and uh, this is the part where I think I might rob some people the wrong way. But um, I think this is like an actual pretty easy litmus test. If you're really on the fence between PM and design, I think it boils down to what do you care more about? So the question I ask is, 
would you rather have shipped Facebook paper or would you rather have shipped Facebook Lite? Uh-huh. I know my answer and that's why I'm a designer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh, if, if your listeners are not familiar, Facebook Lite is this alternate uh, Facebook interface that's for Android, for you know low-end phones, low-bandwidth situations. It's an amazingly successful product in emerging markets. Um, people use it more than default Android app. Like they refer it to their friends, they spend more time on it, they are more active. It's probably like an unheard of product for most people in tech and in design, but very, very successful product for the job it's built for. And then we have Paper. Paper was a breakthrough like app in 2014 when it came out. And I would still say in 2020, if it came out now, it would still be a breakthrough still app breakthrough. in terms of design. Yep, yeah. yeah. Yep. Just just the level of like genius and craft and like it invented all these design patterns, like mm-hmm. these like shimmering load states that we still use. And I think it was the first app to have like really physical um, interactions. So it was just amazing. But then as a product, it was a complete thud. Like we shipped it and it clearly, you know, it became very clear uh, quickly that that wasn't the way people prefer to consume Facebook. So we had this app that was beautiful But then all of the content that was going into the app didn't really support that design, which led to it becoming an unsuccessful product. And I think this is a very good litmus test because obviously, ideally, you make a product that's both very beautiful and useful and well-designed and very successful. But if you had to pick one, are you picking the one whose design looks like early 2000s, like WAP, pre-smartphone era, but very, Uh very useful and impactful for the people it was designed for? Mm -hmm. Or are you picking the one that's like very well designed but it didn't have the intended impact mm-hmm. so marshall your choice would yeah. be i mean obviously paper <laughs> right like yeah uh really i what i would would have picked is i would have picked a world in which people appreciated paper that's what i would have picked mm. <laughs> you would have switched hopped universe time yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i uh, think I, I think people did like people in tech definitely did, I think, even a lot of my PM peers. The, the masses. Th- yeah. That's the thing, though. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting lens to use when we think about our work. At the end of the day, like, we are not necessarily producing works of art. We are producing mm-hmm. products, and products are built so that people use them. So when you have a product that fails to find product market fit, then it, uh, I think, in some ways may have failed its purpose of existing. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved paper, and Me too. I, I hate paper because it is the it's the wet blanket. Anytime I'm like, I get aspirational about like what design can be and what design can do, and like how much you can contribute to the user experience. Like, none of that fucking matters if the product isn't right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, it's it, it is a perfect example of like how amazing a product can be, uh, but also how little that actually, how little my job actually really matters if people like you aren't doing your job well, right? Yeah. So that's what I would say. And like at the end of the day, I think for a product to be successful, if design gets everything they want or PM gets everything they want or Eng gets everything they want, in all of these scenarios, you end up with a product that's ultimately not successful. It has to be a balance. And I think in paper, it might have strayed a little too far in the direction of like giving, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. If I was working with Mike Mattis and I was the PM, I would also do everything he wanted to do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, when you have that level of genius, like just like go with it, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think even for a product like paper, you have to approach it critically from the perspective of like, 
I mean, I, I don't have direct information, but it probably was not a complete mystery to the team why it wasn't successful. Like when you do user tests, people can tell you, well, you know, I don't really like using my thumb this way or the, the content didn't quite make sense or blah, blah, blah. Like there's a number of reasons that you could look into and like address. I actually have one clarifying question here. Yes. Facebook is, and Google and, and these big companies, they're very interesting in the way they define product market fit. And obviously, I don't expect you to know numbers or anything, but could Facebook paper on its own have been a sound product and like a well-regarded startup? Is it, is it only within the context of Facebook's uh, 2 billion users that it failed? So uh, there's actually a very easy answer to product market fit. And this is one of the things I learned when I was training to be a PM and I thought it was fascinating. It's, it's, uh, is the concept of retention curves familiar to you? Yes. Mm -hmm. So for the listeners of the show, a retention curve basically is you look at the people that are using a product on the day they installed it and a week later and a, two weeks later and a month later. And obviously, you know, at all of these time periods, people are going to fall off. The thing that you want to see is a retention curve that flattens. So like uh, two months after people install the product, 50% of people are there and they're onward. Uh, so, you know, it's not a leaky bucket. People continue using the product. And I think for a product like paper, um, there are two problems. One, the retention curve decays very, very quickly. So whereas for the main Facebook app, you know, 50% of people might use it after a month. For paper, it might have been like 5%. Um, so that's one potential problem. The other one is retention curve that doesn't stabilize. So for paper, again, like I don't have the numbers, but, uh, for paper, it could have been that it just kept bleeding users and, uh, you know, there wasn't like a stable, the stable cohort of people that wanted to use it week in and week out was like too small. So Brian, to answer your question, I think even if you take the scale factor out, you can just think about the retention percentage after months. And I think from that perspective, paper wasn't doing really well. Okay. I think that's a beautiful answer, but I think then it immediately comes into tension with this idea of iterating and let's do <laughs> oh, user yeah. research yeah. and fix shit. Like how, how do you, what's your philosophy on like, okay, there's a thing, we have a leaky bucket, retention sucks. Mm -hmm. Let's go fix it versus let's kill the product. You know, for, for Facebook is a very impact-focused uh, company. And I think there is ways in which that's very good. There is also ways in which that's not so good. And I think the disadvantage here is when you have an experimental bet like this, you have a very small, you used to have a very small window of opportunity to prove yourself. That's definitely changed now. Like we're investing in like VR and AR and like all these things that have like multi-time-year horizons. But at the time for paper, it definitely needed more time and we didn't give it the time it needed. So uh, I'll, I'll say it. But, but the other thing is, Brian, I think a lot of these problems are so fundamental that you don't necessarily need to like ship, like we didn't need to ship paper to find out that like the content people have in their feeds didn't fit the app. Yeah, Like that's, yeah. that's, that's something I'd say that's, this is my classic critique for every design mock where designers put like, George does this, so he puts these beautiful pictures in Instagram camera. I'm like, no right. one is taking that picture in Instagram camera. Uh -huh. And yeah. if, if, if we don't, you know, realistically reflect what people are going to see here, 
we're going to end up with a mock that's very beautiful and we, we feel like we have amazing design, but then the actual experience people have when they use it is very different. <laughs> the first mock I make of any given interface is always worst case scenario. What if the title is too long? What if they put in the, a terrible fucking picture? What if, you know, like the worst of everything. If it still looks all right, then you're good. So for paper, it was designed with like these DSLR shot, perfectly color balanced depth of field photos, but then people had like shitty memes in their feed. <laughs> I mean, that's the unfortunate thing about designing apps that have user generated content. Like you, the, the main experience people have is like what the content is in the app. And, you know, you, you have leverage with ranking and whatever, but like you really don't get to control whether people are going to like memes or like which pages they're going to follow. Uh-huh. I think what paper did was it made Facebook feel more official than it really was. Like it, it made it yes. feel more like news, like a news yes. app than, than yes. a fucking meme generator machine, you know, like, yep. uh, yeah, the tone wasn't right. The tone wasn't right. And actually there is, um, I'm going to refer to something Mills Baker wrote. And if you have an interview with him, definitely should. We have. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I when he joined Facebook, I was so elated. I'm like still one of his biggest fans. But he wrote this blog post called like Designer Duds or something, and this was a critique of like these very designed companies and apps that ultimately failed. And he had a screenshot of a Quora answer from a paper engineer where someone said, "Hey, this app does such a good job portraying all these pictures like beautifully, but like." is this going to really work because people are taking shitty pictures of their, you know, shitty phones or have memes in their app. And the paper engineer was like, Oh, maybe our app inspires people to you know, take better pictures. And in hindsight, I'm like, this is the completely wrong way to think about it. <laughs> That's interesting. And I actually, I, I get where that temptation comes from. It's like, if we can seed beauty into the world and enough people use it, they'll, we can elevate all of that. But then we start talking about Instagram and Instagram does feel like it kind of believed that in the early days. I could be totally misunderstanding that, but it's like, okay, people take shitty pictures, but like we can help, we can elevate, we can post-process yeah. and filter. But and you know, that, 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 that's why Instagram worked. Instagram wasn't, we are going to design the UI such that we're going to force people or entice people to take better pictures. Uh, yeah, Instagram yeah. was like- it went, it went the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, Instagram was like, we know that all of these smartphone pictures look shitty. What can we do to make them look better? And I think that's almost like a diametrically opposed approach to like getting some end result that you, end experience that you want as a designer. Ah, this is so fun. I just want to talk more about dead products. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but for the sake of time, Jemre, let's jump into cool things and, and get you out of here. So Marshall and I, we can either kick it off or if you want to go first, uh, feel free. You can kick it off. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> okay. Uh, Marshall, you go first this week. I think I went first last week. All right. Uh, my cool thing this week is is a second iteration of a thing that I own the first iteration of. Uh, Brian, are you familiar with the company 12 South? Yeah, I'm looking at your note where you've typed what you're about to share and I'm uh -huh. just cracking up. Continue. All right. So 12 South, a while ago, like years ago, made this candle called New Mac that was supposed to smell like a new Mac. So I bought one. Uh, it didn't smell like a new Mac. It did smell nice, though. Uh, but it was like, you know, a $25 candle. Anyways, they're back with a $30 candle. A version two of this is called Inspire Mac Candle Number 2. It's available on Amazon. Uh, and so this one, uh, let me read Let me read some of the, the details here for you. Oh, this is amazing. I can't believe this exists. <laughs> yeah. 
Inspire's scent features strong notes of how, how do you pronounce this? Bergamot, bergamo, bergamot, b e r g a m o t, and armoise, armoise, a r m o i s e. Can I can Armois? I just say, Marshall, Armois? Uh, this moment where like a native English speaker is having trouble pronouncing stuff. This happens to me a lot, so it just it. I, I'm just appreciating that this is this seems to be like a universal problem. <laughs> <laughs> these words are hard. Yeah, yeah. These are not common words. Uh, these are like frou frou scent words. Okay. Anyway, so th- the those two things plus hints of lemon, tarragon, amber, and musk. Anyways, it smells like stuff, I guess. So I don't have this. I just saw I saw that it was a thing, and I thought it was funny because I have the first one, and they did it again. This one looks far more macky. It's like a smooth white candle container whereas mine is just like this kind of black glass i don't know it's not, it's, it's nothing fancy this actually feels like it'd be worth maybe somewhere close to 30 dollars. i know that the candle market is ridiculous like just candles in general are fucking expensive for no good reason but um i thought this was funny so cool thing dude the descriptions on this Amazon listing could be out of an SNL skit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We live in an edition of The Onion, Brian. Yeah, this is yeah, the world yeah. we live in now. Okay. Well, if anyone wants to spend thirty bucks on a candle that maybe smells <laughs> like musk uh, and tarragon and all this shit, go for <laughs> yeah, it. yeah, and two other words we can't pronounce. <laughs> wow. Okay. Lovely. I'll I'll do mine. My mine I can do quickly because it's actually a repeat. Marshall, you have. Multiple times over the years, mm-hmm. talked about Hamilton. Mm-hmm. The, Even on the last podcast on uh, Vicarious, yes. I, t- I, I mentioned it like right when I first found out about it. It's been years in the making, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Well, this I think was your cool thing two weeks ago or last week or something, which is that Hamilton is now on Disney Plus mm-hmm. uh, as a movie featuring the original cast production. Mm-hmm. And he- here's how I thought about this you know how you have friends who are like, or not even friends, but like the world tells you that something is cool mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, I need to check it out. Mm-hmm. And then you keep seeing people talk about how cool it is and you start building up this mental image of like, oh, it's going to be about rap or there's going to be rapping in it. Or uh, it's about Alexander Hamilton. Oh, he's, he was a you know, founding father. He's an interesting guy. And you, I get all these bits and pieces. And I had this effect in my head where I'm like, oh, I, I know what's going to happen. Uh-huh. I know what it's about. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know, I've already I've seen mentally it. prepared and like played the the movie in my mind's eye. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyways, <laughs> boy, was I wrong. So finally, <laughs> we just sat down and watched it. And you know, if, if anybody else out there resonates with how I felt, I, I would encourage you to do the same. It was, I mean, even on Disney Plus, the whole time I was like, "Fuck, I want to go see this in person, live on on a stage." Mm-hmm. But the the film was incredible. Like chills, goosebumps, like laughing. I mean, it is sad. And did you cry? Oh man, dude, that scene. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to do spoilers. Where with she the counting? Bur- yeah. Where she burns the letters? Oh, with the yeah, counting. Yeah. Oh, the counting. Oh man. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> that's my cool thing. Uh, I'll just dupe yours because now I've experienced it. But Hamilton on Disney Plus, it's a good watch. Well, I, I know that your experience is is valid, and and you're not alone because uh, I have spent a good portion of the last couple weeks since it came out looking through YouTube for people reacting to Hamilton 
uh, for the first time, having never seen it before, because they had the same thing of you. It was like, everybody says it's so cool. I just never got around to it. Whatever. It's probably not that cool. But then actually watching and be like, holy shit, this is way better than I expected. It is actually as good as everyone was saying it was. Right. So one of my favorite pastimes is watching other people discover and grow to love things that I already love on the internet. I guess I'm going to watch Hamilton now. No. Yes. Yes. yes, Please. (laughs) I've definitely been in this group of people thinking, oh, everyone talks about it, but like, uh, like, I don't know, whatever. All right. I'll take your word. Do it. I expect an update. It's worth it. I promise. All right, (laughs) Jemray, hit us with something cool. All right. So mine is an app uh, called Waking Up. Uh, and it's a meditation app, but I'm going to give you some backstory about it. Is this the Sam Harris? Yes. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Right. Mm-hmm. So January of this year, I did a Vipassana course in Thailand. You may have heard about this as the like 10-day silent meditation retreat. And uh, a lot of my personal friends gave me shit for doing this because it's like such a cliche tech person thing to like get into meditation and go on a retreat. But fuck them. You know, I don't care what they think. It was cool. Mm-hmm. But at the time, uh, I had been meditating for almost five years using Headspace, but like 10 minutes at a time every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to say like, hey, like maybe I had my sabbatical and thought maybe I can go a little deeper in this practice. And one of the things I realized while doing that is there is just so much more depth to meditating and you can get so much more out of it if you invest more uh, compared to, you know, the 10 minutes a day with Headspace. Like, I think Headspace is amazing. And, you know, I'd rather people do it than not do it. And it's great for stress reduction. But, you know, uh, at the course, I realized uh, it, it could also be a way you get to learn more about, like, how your mind functions and your identity and, like, all this stuff. But interesting about the course is you show up and you can't speak for 10 days and you're just meditating with like this group of people. And the reason why you can't speak is they don't want you getting distracted from the experience of learning. Like it's like, like a course, like every day there's like a different topic and you're like just deepening and then, you know, advancing your practice. But at the, at the very last day, you know, we can finally speak. Uh, so it's all these people that I spent a week with, but we couldn't talk to each other. So obviously like we had a lot to talk about. One of the things that came up is, people's prior meditation practice before to coming to this course Uh, and we definitely talked about a bunch of the apps uh, and one of my course mates told me about the waking up app and the reason why i thought it was interesting is he said well all these other apps they really focus on like a very surface level mindfulness you know becoming more aware of your reactions and thoughts but they kind of just leave it there and they don't go any further and with, with the waking up app As far as I know, it's the only app that combines daily sitting uh, with more like in-depth topics like the nature of your consciousness and free will and illusion of self. And obviously, these are not topics I expect uh, everyone would be interested in. But, you know, if you have this daily meditation practice and if you're curious, if you can like invest a little more, I think, you know, going on these one of these retreats is obviously like very, very helpful thing to do. But obviously, it's like a high time investment also during COVID, none of that is happening. So uh, I think this could be a good uh, second alternative. Love it. Yeah. And that's, um, it's a paid app, right? It is, uh, you know, but definitely worth it. Oh yeah, that's good. Uh, that's a good thing in my books, by the way. Is it more valuable than a $30 candle, Brian? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Hey, Gemray, grab the candle, take a month off of meditating and just kind of 
see which really puts your mind at more ease, okay? <laughs> I'm glad I was able to mute because I was cracking up when you were talking about the camel marshal. No, I, I, I will include your laughter in the background. It's great. And, uh, I saw you laughing. That that made me happy. Um, so that's, that's the Sam Harris thing. Have you read, and you mentioned Free Will. Have you read Free Will by Sam Harris? I have not, um, but the interesting thing about this app is it doesn't only have daily meditations. It also has longer form interviews with different meditation masters. It has these lectures in it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in addition to doing the meditation every day, I've been listening to some of these longer podcasts to hear about these. Uh, And I'd say the app is double clicking into Headspace and seeing if there's more there. And Waking Up has interviews with these different masters that all have their own, you know, practices and methods. Some of them have mini courses inside of the app. So even from waking up, we can double click and like go a level deeper. And I think that's like, I haven't done that yet, but I think that's a pretty cool aspect of it. Nice. Marshall, are you going to say something about free will? Oh, I was just going to say that it's more like a pamphlet, but that, that book is very good and, and it has been uh, foundational in, in kind of my worldview. I was just curious oh, if you had read it. Oh, maybe I should. Uh, I, I read. I read his. It's also like a pamphlet. It's basically a blog post. So I think it's called "Lying" or "About Lying" yeah. or something yep. like that. Yep, yep, yep. That's a good one. Another very interesting part of being a product manager to close <laughs> it out. <laughs> uh, well, if you read this TLDR, he says basically there's almost no cases where you should lie. Yep, definitely gets you into some murky territory when you think of lots of reasons that you would want to lie for the greater good, but he pushes against it. Okay. Gem Ray, anyways, this has been such a pleasure of a podcast. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Where should people follow you uh, if they want to see more about what you're working on? Gem uh, underscore Ray at Twitter, which also happens to be the way you pronounce my name. So if you're you know, listening to this podcast and saying, well, how do you say this? It's my Twitter handle. Gem Ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to see you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Marshall. Bye. All right, that's been episode 356 of the Design Details podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did, if you enjoyed this interview, go on to this website. Go to your browser, your default web internet browser. Type www.twitter.com slash HTTP colon slash gem underscore Ray. That's Gem Ray's Twitter handle. Follow Gem Ray, but also tweet at Gem Ray. And if you enjoyed the show, uh, let him know what you thought. I think he would love to hear from you. And and we love to see those tweets as well. So uh, tweet at us. We would appreciate it. Yeah. You can also follow us. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you want to ask us a question for future listener question episodes, you can go to our GitHub. It's at github.com slash specfm. And if you're looking for just more podcasts for your ears, we have a podcast network for designers and developers just like you. That lives at spec.fm. That's it for now. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. That's it for now. We'll catch you next week. Bye. <clears throat> Shit. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's it. <laughs> uh, I haven't talked in a minute. Leave it. Leave it. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. That was the one that I was uh, trying to do, but my so throat good. constricted. Fuck.
right, I you guess know that has to be the stinger. Yeah, I guess this is our stinger now. Shit.